as Americans, we value people doing it all, especially women. We applaud when we see a woman, a single mom who's taking care of her kids, working a full-time job, has a side hustle, and maybe meal preps for the week. And I see that and I'm my reaction is sadness because I see that as somebody who's alone and we shouldn't have to be alone. We, we're not set up for that. We are meant to live as communities. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Forn, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, big up to Trinidad, originally from Atlanta, but currently residing in Spain. I am not only award-winning podcaster, but I'm also a damn good business strategist, if I might say so myself, which I do. (laughs) I primarily work with well-established women business owners and speakers, typically in the organizational culture change and also wellness spaces. And I really help my clients leap into national and international thought leadership. But with Build a Business Abroad, I help newbie entrepreneurs, side hustlers, really leverage their talents and their expertise into viable and sustainable online businesses. Businesses that are going to not only make them professionally fulfilled, but also financially abundant while they pursue thriving lives abroad. If that sounds like something that you're interested in, be sure to grab my build a business abroad guide which you can get via the link in the description of this episode and also be sure to join my newsletter at christinejob.com if you want to learn more about my build a business abroad group coaching program okay and i'm doing something new y'all i would love for you all to record yourselves Yeah, I want to hear your voices. It's a little bit weird, even though it actually very much suits my introvert personality. To me, just be the one on the mic. I want to hear from y'all. In a few weeks, I'm going to do an Ask Me Anything episode. So you can go ahead and record yourself asking me anything. I want you to record yourself. Tell me who you are, where you're from maybe how long you've been listening, and ask me a question. And you can send it at hello at com. You can also send me a review of the podcast or if you have some thoughts or whatever. I would love to hear that and share that with the audience at large. Again, just record it on your voice memo app on your phone. Send it to me at hello at com. I would love to hear from y'all, actually. I'm really excited. So send me some questions so we can actually have a Ask Me Anything episode, okay? Now, y'all know this podcast is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. So if you love this podcast, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting this podcast. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. You can also purchase a piece of production equipment for the podcast via our Amazon wish list, which is available via the link in the description of this episode. 
And of course, leave a review of this podcast. It is so important to leave reviews. It is mind-blowing, actually. Please leave a review of this podcast via Apple, via Spotify, or Google. If you are subscribed to YouTube channel, please leave comments and things like that. It's really important. Please engage with my content on IG. (laughs) It really helps with discoverability, with all the algorithm nonsense. So please, if you love this podcast, go ahead and do that. And of course, share the podcast. I do love getting messages from people who said, my friend sent me this podcast. I've been listening to this podcast. I've been binging this podcast. And I just, I love that. That is the kind of stuff that I love to hear. So thank you so much. And please continue doing that. All right, on to the next episode. Today's guest is Deborah David, and Deborah was born in Jacmel, Haiti, and has over 18 years of experience in international development and nonprofits in the US, Latin America, and the Caribbean. She is fluent in English, French, Spanish, and Haitian Creole, and intermediate in Italian. We love a multilingual queen here. We do. We love it. Throughout her travels, Deborah has learned the best way to support people and communities is to first understand their hopes and dreams. She currently lives in Quito, Ecuador with her family. Now, I had a very lovely discussion with Deborah, ranging from her work in international development to raising children abroad and then sending them to college while living abroad, but also building community while living abroad and how important that is and how perhaps if you're American or if you spent a lot of time in the U.S., you may not recognize the importance of community until you go abroad. But I will let her tell you all about it. My name is Deborah David. I'm 42 years old and I am in Quito, Ecuador. I mean, I'm an immigrant, child of immigrants. I arrived in the United States at the age of three. And I always recognize how fortunate we were because my parents left Haiti for economic opportunity, not because they were seeking political asylum or, or anything like that, where we weren't Uh, able to go back and visit or they didn't feel safe going back to visit. So very early on, we would spend our summers in Haiti pretty much the whole summer. And this was a time when summer was three months. (laughs) So it it was a long summer. And it kind of gave me this duality of okay, this is my life when I'm in the U.S. and this is my life when I'm in Haiti. You know, I think if it had been like one or two week stints, it wouldn't have felt the same because I did feel like the friends I had there during the summers were my friends um, and family. And also I I had a, you know, very close attachment to to my school friends and the, the people I grew up with in the U.S. as well. That I think started it definitely just knowing that there was life outside of the U.S. That even though I, even as a child, heard the, the misperceptions and people assuming that we lived in huts and <laughs> didn't have cars and didn't have just the basics, I knew that to be false. I, I got to live that. And I don't know as a child if I felt strong enough to say, oh, I could live outside of the U.S. I just knew that there was life outside of the U.S. Because I think as a child, too, you're hearing so much from 
your family and your parents how we left here for a reason. So we obviously felt that you could have a better life in the U.S. I think, again, so young, it's harder for you to discern what you feel is a better life. And I 100% appreciate and agree the sacrifices they made for that. But I think it was as I got older and started just knowing myself more and and feeling a, a little bit more confident about my own decisions that I then started to differentiate and know, okay, what my parents felt would be a better life. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's my only option now. I asked Deborah if she attended university, and if so, if she could tell me more about her experience during university, but also if she had the opportunity to study abroad. I grew up in the same small county in Northern California, and then I went to university very close by in wine country at Sonoma State University. So I started kind of researching the different majors that were available, and there was a new one at the time called Global Studies, and it had different concentrations. So I chose um, international economic development. At the same time, all throughout high school, I had been taking French. I really liked the language. Obviously, French is one of the official languages of Haiti as well. But within my family and growing up, we spoke Creole. So I thought, okay, it's it's an advantage and I'm kind of familiar already with it. And then once I got into university, I did continue taking French. And then it was like the two worlds combined. So in talking with my French advisor, she thought, well, why don't you go study abroad in France? And I said, for me, again, child of an immigrant, working my way through college, it sounded like a luxury. It sounded like something that wasn't accessible to me. (laughs) And she explained that actually you can study abroad and end up paying the same tuition that you're paying here. And of course, it's wise to save a little bit of extra because you're going to want to travel. You're going to want to do additional things that you wouldn't necessarily do at home. But in terms of that experience, it isn't so inaccessible. And then my second hesitation was, well, I don't want to prolong college because that's going to mean more money. So she also explained, and then of course, meeting with my global studies advisor that we could figure it out because at that time, my level of French was strong enough that the classes I would take while abroad would count for both. So I wouldn't necessarily have to prolong. And I didn't in the end. So I I did spend a year in Aix-en-Provence, France. And I think that that is actually what solidified this notion that, oh, the U.S. isn't the only better way of life, or this isn't the only place that offers opportunity. It isn't the only place where you can you can excel and be happy and do well. So that year, I, I think really changed my, my perspective and opened up so many doors because I was very aware that, oh my goodness, like a child of immigrants who came and fortunately for us, we, we didn't have an undocumented phase. We pretty much arrived and were able to to do everything that most Americans can do. But still knowing that we weren't Americans, still knowing that as immigrants, you had a lot of hurdles, you had more obstacles. And then to get to this point, now I'm studying abroad and I definitely wasn't the only (laughs) child of an immigrant there, but the world got bigger. And Europe too is a special place that where you're in one country one day and then a few hours later you're in another. So again, that wasn't lost on me that I'm just crossing borders and all these opportunities that I have now stemmed from that decision my parents made 18, 19 years earlier to leave their home country for more opportunities. 
So Deborah is studying international development. She is from Haiti. And so she was looking for an opportunity to go back to her country. And she did. She found an opportunity to do an internship and move back to Haiti. And I asked her to tell me about that experience. I decided to pursue an, an internship in Haiti for several reasons. I think just because I wanted to go home too. I had, you know, I'd been away and at that point I, it had been a few years um, since I'd been to Haiti. And this was also going to be the first time that I would spend this long of time and as an adult, which was a transition as well. So I was really excited and I found a religious organization that had microcredit programs. And that was my first introduction to microcredit, which basically is they're small loans given to what they call like micro entrepreneurs. So mainly women who may be just selling fruit at the side of the road or selling school supplies or selling barrettes and things like that. So very, very small. And actually the loans at the time, I think started at $50. So I was fascinated by by this program and what it could potentially mean for development um, in communities. And after doing that internship before my senior year, pretty much all my senior year, I knew after I graduate, I want to move back to Haiti and I want to work in development there. So probably a second semester, I started actively looking. Very fortunate. I, I felt like I didn't search that long. Um, before I identified another microcredit organization working in, in, in Port-au-Prince. So I went through the process and before I graduated, I, I had this position waiting for me. So right after graduation, I moved <laughs> and took all my stuff in suitcases and all that. And actually, I think I moved with the idea that I was going to be there for years. I was really excited about applying everything that I had been learning to what I felt like was my own community. Again, even I think at that point, you knew that obviously poverty exists in the U.S. You knew that not everywhere had the same opportunities and just access to basic things. But I grew up in a, I felt like a bubble and you just felt for the most part, even though there was poverty, even though there were communities that weren't thriving, they could at that point, I felt like they had the tools, they had the the capability. They, of course, had a lot of obstacles keeping them from doing it, but they could. Whereas in Haiti, you felt they couldn't. <laughs> if there wasn't an intervention, they really just couldn't because the tools and the structures didn't exist for them. So not only now I'm living somewhere that I thought I, I knew, but the town where I'm from versus the the capital, very different. But I had this you know general idea in my head, oh, it must all be the same. I understand the culture, it's the same language, very different. And, and I think we see that in any place, rural areas or just more suburban areas versus like a bigger city. So I'm learning that and and I, I really don't even have friends. I don't have like a social support system. I have family, but they're back in my town, which is about two hours away. And I didn't realize how much that that would impact me. I think in comparison to study abroad, where you're going as a group, your university has everything in place for you. It facilitates that support. You sort of have these built-in friends who understand if you're frustrated about a process, they understand because they're in it 
at the, at the same time with you. Whereas knowing I, I did feel a little bit alone in trying to understand how to do just the basic things. I jumped in head first. Like I was not afraid of anything. I was, I drove, I tried to be as independent as possible, but still eventually you realize I don't have a friend here or a family member that I could just stop by their house and hang out for a bit. And then the stress of starting a new position. I was young. There was a lot to learn. Another big surprise for me was I thought I I was going to be just embraced <laughs> by my colleagues. And very early on, I um, saw that there was a little bit of attention that they felt I was coming in and and trying to take over in some way. I was coming in um, with my fancy degrees and I didn't value their perspective. I think the American education system also encourages debate and questioning and let's talk this through and let's look at it from different angles. That's not universal. So <laughs> when I would do those things, when I would do that for a project or, or something, that was received like I didn't believe in them. And I didn't believe that they had the knowledge and the capacity to make suggestions. And so for me, especially at that age, I, I wasn't going to change that perspective. I needed to change my approach. So once I realized that that was causing friction and I would be met with, you don't know, you didn't grow up here. You don't know the reality. You don't know what it's like. And it was true. What I knew is what I had observed in my time with, with the position, but it's not like I grew up living that reality that some of my colleagues did. And so, yeah, I just sort of became a lot more humble and and knew, okay, although I know that questioning and, and debating things can be healthy and can lead us to a better outcome, I don't want to do that at the cost of building healthy relationships with my colleagues. So I'd say about six months in, I remember hearing the comment like, when did you become one of us? Like they, it was very well known that I had changed. I had shifted and I was now not seen as the outsider, the, the Haitian American, the person who had access to so many different things and now coming in thinking that she can come and fix everything, like she's gonna come save us. So it's almost like that white savior mentality, but I think it is seen sometimes with the diaspora. And again, I think it's 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 a mix of just coming from a culture where being proactive is is valued and taking initiative is valued. And then going into one where if you're doing that, you're stepping on people's toes, you're seen as you're trying to take over, you, you think you know better. So it took it took a little bit of an, a, an adjustment for me. But again, I think the whole time I was just really happy to be helping and to be part of what I believed would change so many communities. So while in Haiti, Deborah got married and got pregnant and her and her husband decided to transition to the United States. And I asked her to tell me about that transition and why they decided to return to the United States. I was there uh, about a year. And during that year, I got married and then shortly after was pregnant with my daughter. And so towards... Uh, the end of my pregnancy, everything was was great. I actually, again, thought in my head, I'm here for years. I'm committed. 
this is where I'm going to have my child. And in talking with my husband and my family, they thought, you just never know since you have the the access, you don't want to have this regret if something goes wrong. I was of the mindset, like people have babies here every, every day and they're fine. But I, you know, I, I tried to take the perspective, taking the perspective of, of my family members and, and their concern. And so we decided at that point to initially just go have the baby in the U.S. But while I was there, this was actually around the same time that there were a lot of protests. This was going to be the second departure of Alistid. And at the time, we didn't know. We just knew that there was a lot of protests going on. Even before I left, oftentimes back and forth to work, I'd have to deviate. I have had to go back because it was starting to kind of pick up that way. And I think that also kind of helped me understand the perspective that family members had that you just never know and you don't want to, you don't want, you know, to regret afterwards. So while I was in the States, had my daughter and I was really just thinking I'm here for a few months and, and then we're going to move back. My husband and I started having the discussion like, well, maybe um, this isn't the best time. And I think at that point still, there, the president hadn't left, but it was almost like you felt like it was imminent. You felt like there was going to be a period of like a lot of instability. So we made the decision to settle in Florida with the idea, oh, well, we're closer. So if if we ever want to go back, it's an hour, an hour and a half flight versus going back to California. So we settled back. And I think when we settled Initially, I still had the the hopes that, oh, once things quiet down, we'll go back to Haiti. So maybe we're here a few years and then we go back because I still had this passion of community development, helping to transform communities. But when I got to South Florida, I realized too that more than I saw in Northern California, there were a lot of communities that weren't thriving. And, and maybe there was an opportunity for me while I was there as well to continue the same type of work, just in a geographically different location. So I started to look at, you know, nonprofits and things like that and, and get a better understanding of the history because it was, I, I was very new to everything and learning about why certain communities didn't thrive and why you'd be driving and all of a sudden you're in a neighborhood and everybody looks like you, that kind of thing. And how did that come to happen? And there's a lot of history there too. So yeah, initially just just being, hoping that I could have some impact where I was at the time, but in the next few years, figuring out how to transition back to Haiti. We were in Florida for seven years. During that time, had my son and my husband had always worked for the Haitian government. So at the time he was working for the Haitian consulate in Miami. And the the idea of going back got a bit farther and farther away. Now, we did go back to visit, of course. So there was always that connection. It just picking up everything with now with children, small children, and kind of starting over again wasn't a priority at that point. However, my husband oh, had always had the dream of going to South America and he was very interested specifically in Venezuela and the ties, historic ties between Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador with 
Haiti. And I didn't even speak Spanish. Like I said, I always studied French. So it was not on my radar as much as it was for him. But eventually he was promoted and transferred to the Haitian embassy in Venezuela. It wasn't out of the blue. I knew that this was something he wanted. It just took a while for it to happen. So when it actually did happen, I think it was easy for me to sort of pivot and say, okay, this is happening now. What are we going to do as a family? Do we all go? And when do we all go? I think it was for me definitive. We are all going, (laughs) but not knowing when. So I made a first visit and I think it was like October of 2009 to Venezuela. And I liked it. I didn't know what I was going to feel, but I think I saw myself living there. I saw myself and like the kids just being there. I think I was there a week and I just picked up a lot in terms of family, like how, how families spent time together and how people just enjoyed like time together, having something to do and, oh, let's go do this. And I feel that socializing in the U.S. is very much about doing something, (laughs) going somewhere, going out to eat together, or there's always like a destination in mind. And I've always appreciated, I saw this in France as well, cultures where just being together, just sitting in a space together, whether it's outside. And that was also socializing. That was also enjoyable. So I got to see a little bit of that in my week and I thought, oh, I think this would be cool. Now, I also was hoping that I was going to be able to continue, kind of similar to what I did when I got to Florida, identify, oh, it's communities that wanted support and to kind of continue my my career that way. So December of 2009, we packed up everything and moved. And I think, yeah, upon arrival, again, I since I had that week experience, I was really, I was already envisioning like what our life would be like and what I would be able to do. And then I think once I got there, the lack of of language <laughs> fluency hit me like a ton of bricks. And I realized I could leave the house with my kids, but if I get lost, I, I don't know how to communicate. If um, I go to a store and I need to know like the price or something is being conveyed to me about my purchase, about my transaction, I can't understand it. So I think maybe a month or two after arriving, I started Spanish classes. I I didn't know what opportunities were available for me career-wise, but I knew without the language, I just couldn't do much at all. So I just jumped into that and committed and said, I am going to learn. And something I think that was important for me when I was learning Spanish as well is having had those experiences of not knowing how to communicate and seeing the faces and all of that, I said to myself, I know as a Black woman, there's always going to be assumptions made about me just upon appearance. But if I can kind of just even just surprise somebody by my ability to speak Spanish, that's my goal. And and for me, it was, I don't want to just speak it basically. I don't want to just have like the ability to buy things and function as an adult. I want to have like college level. I want to be able to make a speech. I want to be able to hold a business meeting. Like that was my goal in terms of where I wanted to to go with my with my language skills. And I've seen it and I and I did it. <laughs> I committed to it. But and I've also seen the 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 shift also when I start to speak to somebody and they see, oh, 
<laughs> it's not what I thought. That was December 2009, and we haven't looked back since. So Deborah's husband is a diplomat for the Haitian government. And so I asked her to describe to me, what is it like moving as a part of a diplomatic mission? I immediately noticed that it was not all set up for me. <laughs> it was not at all like the experience that let's say diplomats from the United States or from the UK or from France that they're accustomed to, where there is an existing structure, where there's like a, there's staff that, that it's just that's their job is to help you get settled and transition into your new space. In that sense, we were sort of on our own. Absolutely having a diplomatic passport, having a diplomatic visa, immigration-wise, that facilitates a whole lot. And you're not going through or jumping through as many hoops as I would be at the time as just with my Haitian passport. And at that time, the tensions with the U.S. weren't as heightened. So sometimes I would, I not to come into the country, I wouldn't use my, my American passport, but um, obviously to leave. I would, and in that respect, I would say just immigration-wise, things were easier. But in terms of finding housing and getting the kids enrolled at school, like that was all on us. The decision was all for us to make. D deciding where to live, not really having any staff at the time able to tell us like, this is a good area, this is not a good area. But luckily my husband speaks Spanish. So he was you know, able to make friends quickly, talk to people and get the local perspective of good areas, where to avoid, what we could and couldn't do. But yeah, it was a lot of just learning <laughs> on our own. And then of course, because my husband is a diplomat, he had to jump into work. So he wasn't available to just tour with me every day and again, not having any friends, which similar to my experience in Haiti. So that wasn't so much of a shock. I think I was able to to manage that better, but I just had to put myself out there a lot and learn a lot. There are like diplomatic associations, but I, I did not find them to be super helpful. And I think at the time, I, I can't speak to other countries, but I know because of the of the shifts that were happening in Venezuela, that of course the U.S. and and a lot of European countries were not um, in agreement with. There was a lot of complaining, so I was hoping to go to to these functions and and meet other recently arrived diplomats and commiserate and learn from them because we all had lengths of stay and. All I would get for the most part were just complaints and, oh, this doesn't work and this is bad. And, and it just reminded me a lot of expats that, that go to countries and, and want that country to be like theirs. And that's not what I was looking for. I knew going in that it wasn't going to be like the U.S. So I but I wanted to know what was it like and what was the best way to function and to, to be happy there. So. Yeah, that was, I would say, the extent of the support because it's just a small mission as well. I think and it's not just I didn't see that with just Haiti. I saw that with a lot of like the Caribbean um, countries, Barbados, the small islands who maybe their mission had two or three people. And so I know then once I kind of got my bearings, I was very proactive in helping to welcome <laughs> those from those smaller nations as well that didn't have a staff of 70 people who could help support their transition. So yeah, just trying to be there. And I think it was, again, I was able to connect with a lot of them 
just being from the Caribbean and understanding what it's like coming from an island. We didn't speak the same language, but English being our, our common language, there were a lot of similarities or a lot of things that I understood culturally that, that they were going to have to adjust to in Venezuela. Since I had been there a while, I, I had a better understanding. So I was happy to, to serve in that role because I knew I didn't have that support when I got there. So Deborah and her family were living in Venezuela and really enjoying it. So I asked her, how did they end up in Ecuador? So we arrived in Venezuela in 2009, and by 2012, we made our first trip to Ecuador. And I, it was sort of right before our summer trip, because every summer we would go and spend pretty much the two months between Haiti and the U.S. And I was just so focused on that trip and getting ready to see family and all of that. One day, my husband comes home and says, hey, there's going to be a an official visit to Ecuador. And... I think we should all go. And my response was like, no, we have so much going on and getting ready for the big trip. And and then he said, well, I already bought the tickets. So (laughs) there was no turning back at that point. And I am so happy he, he pushed me out of my comfort zone because that first visit, it was July of 2012 to Quito, Ecuador. I for some reason, just loved it. I remember landing and it was a long travel day. We had a huge delay in Bogota, um, Colombia. So we ended up staying staying four or five hours there when we were supposed to only be there like 30 minutes. So it was really, I, I had a lot of reason to arrive and sort of just be out of it and not take in anything. It was the complete opposite. I just felt alive. I felt like, wow, I just, something about the energy without talking to anybody. I was still on the plane at this point, (laughs) but I've had that experience before. So I wasn't, I wasn't too surprised by that, but getting off the plane, it was midnight at that point and not much to see. And then I remember just at that point, the, the, the airport was still in the city proper. And so maybe a 10, 15 minute drive to our hotel. And then the next day, opening the, the, the window and seeing the view, I don't know. I, it was just magic for me. And so I think our first visit was probably four or five days, not long. But I, I even loving it, I, I don't know if I dreamt big enough from that first visit to think we could live here. But eventually we started to go back at least once a year. We would go back usually around Easter time for the kids' vacation and we would visit, we would do touristy things and we would shop. And then I think probably by the second visit, I thought, wow, we could live here because also at that time, Venezuela was becoming a little bit more difficult just day by day, really. There weren't as many sanctions as there are now, but they were just ramping up. And it was just from one day to the next, uh, what you could do today in terms of just finding basic items. That's where I think it started to hit first. And then, you know, what comes with that is increased violence and, and robberies and things like that. But we were still definitely at, in 2012, 2013, for the next four years, even with the back and forth to, to Ecuador, we were still pretty committed to, to being in, in Venezuela as long as my husband was needed there. But I just loved it. I loved every trip that we made. And I, I just, it was a dream. It was, oh, one day we could live here. I think that would be great. So finally, I think 2015 is when we really said, okay, let's just do it. And this was, you know, mid school year. So we knew we were going to wait until the school year ended. But like 
we're not going to just think about it or talk about it anymore. Let's just make it happen. So July of 2016, we made the move to Quito, Ecuador. And leading up to it, I started to think more about adult, you know, as a mom, you can appreciate certain things. But I was very concerned about how the kids would transition. At that point, my son had only really known Venezuela. I mean, we moved there when he was two. And then my daughter was at this age it was like 13, 14, where you start to have your friends and you start to be attached in certain ways and, and starting over is not is not easy for a teenager. So I, although I was determined and I was really happy about the decision, I thought, okay, what if we get there and they don't like it? <laughs> where I didn't have that concern because they were so small when we moved to Venezuela. But we were very fortunate. I mean, we had, so we had the summer about, well, about a month and a half before school started. And so we were getting settled. And then once school started, it was, I'd say for my son, a little easier because he's in elementary school. And at that age, kids are, kids are a little bit more friendlier. And also they've also been in the French system their whole lives. And I also, I realized in both places that I think being in an international school is is beneficial in that sense. There's some downsides to it. I think because the kids in those schools are very used to people being different and they're very used to hearing funny accents and they're used to people coming and going, it's still an easier transition. I don't think they would have made a, a, an easy transition in an Ecuadorian school because of that. Because at that point, kids are a little bit more, especially for teenagers, a little bit more cliquish and they have th- their friends that they've grown up with since elementary school and they're not necessarily open to bringing in a new person. So that went really well, better than I hoped. And the only thing I think when we arrived that had me doubt my decision were tremors. So we're in a seismic region. And in April of that year, there was a huge earthquake that that kind of devastated, especially the coast. And so there were a lot of tremors happening for several months after that. So when we first, I think it was like our first night in our new, a new house and there was a tremor, but you felt it. I mean, some of them you don't even know, but this one, you definitely felt it. Like we had to evacuate and everything. And then about a month later, there was another one that woke us all up in the middle of the night. And I remember with that second one, I thought, did we make the right choice? (laughs) But I remembered there are millions of people who live here and they're not necessarily thinking like we can't stay here because of the tremors. So why couldn't we? You never get used to them, but eventually it wasn't as shocking and you didn't, at least for me and I think as a family, we weren't as fearful every time one happened. So yeah, other than that, from arrival, I think we've had a very, very good experience up until now. Hey, I hope that you are enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, please consider supporting the podcast by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash firstforeign. Or, of course, you can purchase a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wish list, which you can find on the website flourishintheforeign.com. All right, let's continue the show. Deborah has two children, and I had to ask her what it has been like 
raising kids abroad. I think raising my children abroad was the best decision I, I made for them. My only regret is that they weren't able to grow up um, immediate family or extended immediate uncles, cousins, all of that, because I had that experience where I grew up with my cousins like we were siblings. So as a nuclear family, I think it, it, it forced us to be much closer, but I wish that they also had those links as well, where they feel like their cousins have a really good understanding of what they're going through or that they have inside jokes, things that they lived through together or memories that they, they could have had together. But other than that, the fact that they're bilingual, and we were fortunate to to be able to put them in, in an international school, which opens a lot of doors for them as, as well. They have adjusted really well. I think that by virtue of changing, and not that much. I know that some expat kids will change posts every two to three years. So they, in that sense, they, they feel grounded in those in the two countries in Venezuela and and in Ecuador more so my daughter because when she left Venezuela she was a teenager so she is still in touch with those friends and they have a a camaraderie that again I think they'll have forever those experiences those memories and then for her to pretty much do her high school in Ecuador and that again gave her a new kind of group of of friends that that hopefully she'll have forever as well but For my son, I'm very aware that he is a Black boy, (laughs) and I'm sure he is as well, but it's funny. It it almost feels like it's something that could be quote-unquote forgotten because he is in that international school and there is this sense of openness because I think that's a very surface type of observation. He still is the only Black boy in most spaces. And I don't know if it's with everything that's going on within the US, with Black Lives Matter, with Trayvon Martin, like all those things that happen in the news and seeing young Black boys killed for being young Black boys. I think that heightened my um, awareness because I always thought if we were in the US, what would I do? Would I be comfortable letting him go out. Every time he he went to the store, <laughs> would I would I be worried? I think I would. I absolutely think I would because when I see the images, when I see the pictures of these young black boys, I see my son. It's that's him. He he loves to wear his hoodies. He's that's that's just what they it, which is very normal. And I always think about how odd to see those similarities, even though we're not in the US. So they somehow, and I don't know if it's through me, I think partly through me, but I think a lot of it too having to do with American entertainment that is so prevalent and just everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, that they do kind of embody this Americanness as well, even though they have not lived there for so long and have spent the majority of their childhood in Latin America. But I'm grateful, actually, for that. I'm grateful that he is in a space, although, again, I'm not naive enough to think, oh, everybody around him accepts him for who he is. I also know that we're fortunate to not be in a very violent culture. There's very little gun violence. Police officers that don't even have guns (laughs) and another thing, school shootings. I'm not saying it could never happen, but it's just not something that's in the forefront of my mind, which I think it would be if I were in the U.S. So for my daughter, 
as a black girl, as a black young woman, I do think like being an adolescent and being in a predominantly not black space, what I what I think that impacts is your self-confidence. The images of beauty that you're getting don't look like you, which it happens everywhere, right? It's not just outside of the US. But I think when I come back to the US, I, I see a lot more effort being made, a lot more progress. You go into stores now and you see a lot of diversity in the pictures and in the models and things, which which is great. That's not yet really happening in Latin America, definitely not in Ecuador. And that's one thing I don't think I ever figured out how to really fix. And maybe there is no fix for it. It's more just reminding her that she's beautiful, not beautiful for a Black girl or whatever. There's nothing to qualify. She's just a a beautiful person, but that knowing that has to come with from within. I think that that because of my own wellness journey, that has not only helped me to be mindful of their individual experiences, but also just knowing that they have to be reminded that so many things that they worry about or that they're doubtful about that that shift comes from within. I can't convince them and and their friends can't convince them. They just have to get to a place where they're confident in who they are and and the value that they, they bring to those around them. So that I think was some, and again, it's not, there's no fix to it. She just, there was nobody who looked like her. And when it came to dating and all of that, I think that also that also can impact because it just, you're the only one, <laughs> you're the only one. So you're, you're always kind of looked at as an outsider to an extent. And I feel like that would have happened even if, if she were Ecuadorian, but she would be the only black girl. And so there's always this sort of a little bit of curiosity. What's that like? And well, let me look at your skin. And I, I get that. I get that as an adult, but I think as an adult, I can maneuver those situations a little bit better. I'm confident enough in myself to kind of convey to somebody like, no, you cannot touch me. No, you cannot touch my hair. No, I'm not a zoo animal. But for teenagers, it's a little bit tougher. Now that she's in university in the U.S., that has been another shift. And and this time, this is a shift she's sort of doing on her own. Of course, she has me for support and she can ask me questions. But even her experience right now, I don't know it. I don't quite understand it because from the age of three, I was in the U.S. So I grew up with my American friends. And that's why I feel American too, where she doesn't. She I can identify because again, the entertainment, she watches the movies, her accent, she can kind of relate. But a, a while ago, I asked her, you when somebody says, what are you or where are you from kind of thing? Because that is for us such a loaded question. What do you say? And she said, well, I just say I'm black. And I said, well, what if somebody thinks you're African-American? And she said, I correct them. I, I can't identify as an African-American. And I feel like it would be unfair for me to, to, even though from what they see and the way that I talk, they may assume it. I, I think it's important that they know that I'm not because there are so many experiences and just even the culture, I don't understand. And she doesn't. <laughs> and I think little by little, I realized that as well. Um, there are a lot of nuances to to growing up as a Black person in the United States. And she didn't have the, that experience. And she it, for her to pretend, yeah, I agree with her. I said, and I thought that 
that was very wise um, for her to, to be so self-aware and to know that it would be very dishonest, even though she could pass. I know at her age, at 19 years old, she's still trying to figure out like what's her cultural identity, really. She she identifies with, with the Haitian culture. Absolutely. She understands a lot more about it, but she also understands a lot about Ecuadorian culture, about Venezuelan culture, her accent, which is great in some respects. I think the ability to adapt that way, but you also need to be grounded. For me, I've always been grounded in my Haitian culture and I don't, she hasn't had enough of any to feel grounded in one yet. I hope that either one day she does <laughs> feel that or she creates her own sense of identity and sense of culture, which will probably be a hodgepodge of all the cultures that she's been exposed to as a child. Deborah's children, I think it's safe to say, are third culture kids. And I was intrigued to learn more about how Deborah and her husband were preparing their children to go to college. I was able to help a lot because I went through it and this, the process hasn't changed a whole lot. I think what's mainly different about the whole college application process now is that a lot of it is online. A lot of it is electronic, which is great. You're not mailing things and waiting for letters in the mail as before. But for them, my daughter was very convinced from, I would say, probably ninth grade that she was going to the U.S. This French system prepares you for French university. And so I thought, especially because all of her close friends were were going to French university and in France, that 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 was a given. But she kept saying, like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to France. I don't want to go to university in France. I think the this came from the the entertainment influence again like the american movies about the college experience i don't see that with any other culture i don't see movies <laughs> about the french college experience or even like the japanese you know any any other countries really sell that and I know that it's a lot of good marketing, but it works. <laughs> it works. So for her, she was just determined. So up until probably her junior year, that's when I started saying, okay, well, now we got to think of the SATs or the ACTs and then start that process because we were on our own. Being in a French school, their their structure is set up to navigate you through the college application process for France, nowhere else. But at the same time, the diploma that you get, the high school diploma from the French system is recognized internationally, which is which is. I think wonderful. So we got her into SAT prep because it's a very different testing mentality <laughs> that she was not at all familiar with. And I, again, am very lucky that Ecuador has all those resources you, where you can take an SAT prep class. You could take the SAT. They have official testing sites in Quito. Once we finish the prep and then signing up for the, for the testing date, and then waiting for your scores back, which again, great that now it doesn't, you don't have to wait for it in the mail. You get an email with your score and then choosing which schools to apply to. I actually nudged her to go to Florida. It just, it always feels like a, a home to us. If for some reason had to move back to the, to the U.S. immediately, that's where I would go. So we looked at universities in Florida, did the whole application process. Now there's like the common application, which didn't exist when I was applying, which is helpful, which means you only have to do one essay and you can send it off to all the universities who use that system. One 
of the many advantages, again, of the French system in terms of writing and those types of things, those skills are, are, are valued a lot in, in that system. So she did pretty well in preparing her application and getting things done on time. And then there was the, the piece of translation, which the grading system is different for France. So all her transcripts had to be evaluated and there are different companies that are accredited to do that. So that piece too, that was new to me as well, but I I kind of helped navigate that with her as well. My son too, he's in the ninth grade and he has said many times, I'm going to the US. I don't know if it's the influence of the older sibling or again, the the marketing of, oh yes, let's go have the the college experience that we've seen um, in so many movies and series. But I I hope that he broadens his horizons because to me, again, that diploma that opens so many doors, not just for the U.S., you could go pretty much anywhere. You could go to Canada. You could go to, there's there's just so many other places that you could potentially study. And I think in the next three years, we'll we'll see if if he changes his mind. But for now, he too has the determination of like that U.S. college experience, which is, it is lovely. I had it, although mine was not like what we see in the movies. And I think my daughter is seeing the same thing, like her experience does not mirror what we see in the movies. But also I think the resources that go into universities in the US is pretty incredible and the structure that exists. And I think, again, if you go through that door to then open so many other doors. So I support that decision for them if that's what they want, but I also encourage them to look beyond that. Something that I love to ask my guests that are married and have been married abroad is how has living abroad affected their marriage? It's hard for me to differentiate. Is it the experience of expatriating together or is it just us as as a couple? But I know that something that was always important for us too is to sort of pave our own path and to not let expectations of others, of family members impact our decisions. We needed to always make our decisions based on what works for us. And that, I think, starting from the move to Venezuela, where we had a lot of input from family saying like, you shouldn't go with the whole family. You should just go and go work and and see how it is. Because there's also this perception amongst a lot of immigrants that the U.S. is the only stable place. If anywhere else, that's why we all go there. And so going to somewhere like Venezuela, you just never know. You never know. So don't take that risk and stay here. And he can come back and forth. And we were from there like determined, nope, we're going to all take the risk together. And if it doesn't work out, if we fail, we fail as a family and we come back. I think making decisions that way kind of automatically made us stronger as a unit. And we've continued that. We, we've at times had to make some tough decisions and, and kind of go back and forth and what would be best, what would be best for the kids. But we, we do it as a unit. So being able to express your doubts about things and and your worries that experience i think has has really helped with communication but of course with i think and then this goes to wherever we were if we had stayed in florida this whole time it's very cyclical we've been married 20 years so we've experienced a lot together we've experienced losses we've experienced success. We've experienced hard financial times. We've experienced more comfortable (laughs) times. So just having all those different experiences, which I think could happen anywhere, that also is, is, I think is always good 
whether the experiences are good or bad, whatever label we put on it, it's an experience and, and experiencing it together. I think on the other side of it, you'll find you've learned something about each other. You're more comfortable in, in certain things because now you've experienced this thing. Like I said, whether it is a good thing or a bad thing, now you can kind of sit back and go, wow, but we went through it together and we got to the other side of it. I think another advantage that I, I, I feel that I've had with my husband is that we, we are both Haitian. We're both from the same town. So when it comes to deciding where we're spending our vacations for so long, it was a no brainer. It's like, we're going to Haiti. We're going to Haiti because we both know the the opportunity to spend time with family there is fleeting. You One minute you, you, you can easily go, you can go two or three times a year. And then the next, you have a year, two years go by, you can't go because because of X, Y, and Z. So we we were able to value that at the same time, which made it so much easier. I, I always think I can't imagine if my partner were not um, Haitian and we're not from the same town. And so then when we were talking about those things, we'd have to kind of negotiate and some summers we'd have to spend with other family members that weren't in the same place. So that I think has been such a blessing for us and for our kids because they were um, able to have that time and those memories with their cousins, with their grandparents and aunts and uncles in Haiti. And to me, that's priceless. Deborah and I had a really interesting conversation about how her views of womanhood and motherhood have kind of been influenced by her time abroad. As Americans, we value people doing it all, especially women. We applaud when we see a woman a single mom who's taking care of her kids, working a full-time job, has a side hustle and maybe meal preps for the week. And it's like, I see that. And my reaction is sadness because I see that as somebody who's alone and we shouldn't have to be alone. We we're not set up for that. We are meant to live as communities. We see that with early versions of tribal societies and things like that, where everybody has their role and everybody helps each other. Now, obviously, now I I also value, I don't want to say rewarding, but if somebody does work, they should be paid for it. I'm not expecting um, people to volunteer to help me do everything that I need to do. And once I was in cultures where that was the norm that you had somebody who came in and cleaned for you. You had somebody who cooked for you. You you had, sometimes you had a, a driver. And these were all forms of help that were not seen as luxuries. They weren't paying for that. That sort of support didn't mean you were a millionaire. It just that was what middle class families do in order to be able to enjoy time together. Because if you're having to do everything, of course, you're exhausted. You're not going to come home at night and spend an hour just talking with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, because you're exhausted. But the more that I had that sort of help, the more I think that I was comfortable accepting like that was the norm (laughs) because I saw such a benefit with how I felt when I was with my children or with my spouse, that I wasn't stressed about, oh, I have to get back now because I got to start dinner, or I got to get back now because I have laundry to do. And these are such very basic things that I think in 
American culture, we've gotten to see them. Of course, you should do these things yourself. And I, I challenge that now. I say, but why? <laughs> like, why should you? If you want to, if you can do those things, yet still have time to um, catch up your with your mom on the phone for an hour without feeling pulled in five directions and without feeling stressed, then all then of course do it. But in my case, and I know in the case of a lot of people, you're not able to do everything and enjoy it because that's, I think, the other piece. Physically, yes, we can. Physically, if when I had to, I had about a, a few months of that where I was alone. My husband had already moved um, to Venezuela and I was with the two kids. I, I look at that time as survival mode. I don't know if I had any good conversations with anybody because it was get up in the morning in time to get the kids ready for school, drop them off at school, then go to work, be at work all day, and then go back, pick them up from school, get home, order food because literally 6.30, 7 p.m. at night, like I'm not going to start a meal and order food, get them fed, bathed, put to bed, and then I'm out. And then I'm just like, I'm exhausted. There's nothing else for me to do. So, but that was me. And so once I was in Venezuela and then through my time now in, in Ecuador, realizing that it's not viewed the same. I mean, I remember even telling friends, my American friends that, yeah, I have someone helping me now. And they're like, oh, well, now you have help. <laughs> and now, oh, now, you, oh, do you have a butler? It, it was like a joke. And then it kind of made me self-conscious about telling people. There are times when I, I'm, I'm out somewhere and just, um, especially when the kids were younger and somebody says, oh, where are the kids? They were with and I start saying things like my person, <laughs> my person, because I didn't feel comfortable saying with the nanny. I didn't feel comfortable saying with the woman who who works for us. And and I didn't want to be disingenuous and say, oh, they're with a family member. So it's just like my person, you know, I have a person who helps support the household. So I thought of all these strange ways to describe what is perfectly normal in other cultures, right? It's perfectly normal to have someone helping you with your children, someone helping you keep your house clean. And the other side of that too is we also see people who work in that industry uh, a different way in the US. Like we see them as, oh, they're they're just doing that because that they have no choice. They must not have language skills. They must not um, have their education. There's all these assumptions about people in the service industry. Whereas in other cultures, it's not. The, that's what they do. People will work 30 years in the service industry, put their kids through school, all of it, will travel, will live a full life working in that industry. And it's more about the stability. If they're a good employee, it's not about ascending. I think because we get so caught up and like, you're only doing well is if you're pr being promoted, if you're moving up in some way, where in the service industry, a lot of times it's not about that. It's just, I've been working at this restaurant for 10 years. I've been, you know, working with this family for 15 years. And that's perfectly normalized in other cultures. And it's not in the US. And, and I think it causes a lot of problems. I think we don't realize that when we're looking at mental health in the US, addictions and, and all those other things that are very pervasive, Whereas in these same cultures that I'm thinking of, where this is normalized, having the support is normalized, you don't see that as much. Of course it exists, but you don't see it as prevalent as you see it in American society. Deborah is also a Black woman podcaster. 
So I asked her to tell us all about her podcast so all of you can check it out. So my podcast is called Well, Why Not? I had a blog before I moved to Venezuela while I was still in South Florida. And it was talking about raising my third culture kids (laughs) and what that was like and, and how I did it, how I made sure to balance the Haitian culture and the American culture and all that. And then once I moved to Venezuela, it kind of was like, oh, I'm now adding this third culture. And I was still learning because now adding in this new culture that I didn't even know, I was new to the Venezuelan culture. I couldn't explain really how I was balancing it all because I was still learning. And then a few years ago, I started thinking about podcasting, but more along the lines about living abroad and making that choice as an immigrant, because now I know that I've committed to it. <laughs> I've been abroad for going on 12 years. So I thought there are a lot of people who who have those questions. And because I get them all the time, people say like, how'd you end up there? Or I meet people while I'm abroad and they say, oh my gosh, you, you're actually an American. Actually, I always tell them that I am Haitian <laughs> who immigrated to the U.S., grew up in the U.S. and have, am now living in Ecuador. And just explaining that, and there's all, always a lot of questions and it seems for a lot of people like something that is, it can't be done. So I wanted to have this podcast where I just, talked about my experiences, how I did it, why I did it, what I think has been great about it. And then of course, answer any questions that that people have. Probably around the time of George Floyd and when Black Lives Matter really kind of came into the forefront, I started seeing a lot of African-Americans who started having that same conversation and not only African-Americans, but immigrants as well. So Black immigrants who thought that the United States was the the promised land and the the best place for them. And now are starting to question that and say, well, do I go back home or do I go to another country? Because now I have a a pretty strong passport. Maybe there are other opportunities. So that, for the most part, is the conversation that I have on, on the podcast. I asked Deborah to share some wisdom she has gleaned from all of her time abroad. I always say first visit, don't jump into anywhere blindly. I know that sometimes people like meet people um, in other countries and then they just jump in and go, okay, well, I'm going to move. I'm going to move to be with the person I love for whatever reason that you choose to explore living in, in another country. I think the first thing you need to do is visit and get that first experience of like, what does the air smell like? What, is the, what does it sound like? <laughs> what are the noises? Just the little things that we take for granted in our everyday life. And then once we move to a new space, we find, I don't like that. I don't like how people speak loudly here. Things, little things like that, one. And then the second I always say too is don't run away from problems. Like don't do it to just to escape something. It's definitely a change in lifestyle. You will Your life will change once you move to another country but do it for the right reasons. Because I think if you are a person who's very pessimistic and who sees a lot of bad, in general, you're gonna do that anywhere. So even if things change for you, you're not dealing with the same set of problems that you were dealing with at home, you're gonna find something to complain about in the new space. I see that a lot with expats, that they they came expecting certain things to be like it was. And I think either you're expecting it to be like it was at home, or you just have created some expectation in your head. That's not your your place to do that. I think when we move to another country, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. You are always a guest and you should always act like a guest. And you should always be, to me, first and foremost, in gratitude because 
this country, whether through the immigration process or the community where you live, they've accepted you. They have embraced you. You are now part of them. And I, I can never understand or accept someone who gets embraced in a new space like that, yet finds fault in every little thing. I think instead of finding fault, we just have to change our perspective and again, embrace difference. Oh, this is how they do it here. Okay. Versus I can't believe that they, they take so long to, I can't believe you have to spend an hour at the bank. No, it's just the way it's done here. <laughs> and things are done differently in every country. And to just go into it with that in mind. I asked Deborah to define her definition of wellness and how that definition and concept and of course practice of wellness evolved as she has lived abroad. My definition of wellness is just being balanced in everything you do. We have so many responsibilities and priorities and goals, but I think if you're able to balance all of it to where you can get things done, be productive, show up, yet still care for yourself, yet still rest, pause, be mindful. I think that at least for me is what I strive for in wellness, just a healthy balance amongst all the different things that are pulling us in different directions. It has been a journey for me. I did not always understand what wellness looked like for myself. But my time abroad, my time outside of the U.S. and seeing how other cultures um, and communities support each other and value things that aren't monetary (laughs) and don't have to do with the career and, and earning more and upgrading your lifestyle that way. It has always helped to bring me back to myself and knowing that the happiness, the joy, the feeling good about myself and everything that I'm doing, it starts with me. Thank you so much, Deborah, for sharing your stories and your wisdom. I really appreciate it. If you're interested in keeping up with Deborah, you can via social media. My podcast, Well, Why Not, is on all the the major platforms, (laughs) Apple all of those. And then on on Instagram, well, why not podcast eight? And then from there, you can find the links to every other platform. Right now, I'm mainly on Instagram in terms of social media, but I have recently started uploading my episodes to YouTube as well. Thank you again, Deborah, And thank you all for listening to Deborah's story. You know, something that Deborah said that really resonated with me was that we're not meant to live alone. We're meant to live in communities. And that is so important to think about if you are considering moving abroad. And community is not necessarily going to wherever you think is gonna have the most Black American, Black Brits or whatever, or even Black community, right? Because we all know not all skin folk are kin folk, all right? But really, I think what it is, an opportunity for us to define what community means to us. Not only what we're looking to get from community, but what we want to contribute to community. And then seek out places that share those values and that might be the right fit. I always tell everyone, allow your vision of a life well lived, allow your values to lead you in this journey. Do not try to cram your life into a city, a country, a place. It never works and you are often very unhappy, and then you guys write about it on Facebook forums. 
So I want you guys to not only go abroad, but you know, thrive abroad. It is about longevity in whatever way that means to you. It's about moving and living on your own terms. Okay? All right. Thank you guys again for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to support this podcast by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. You can purchase the Moving Abroad with Intention Guide. There's a link in the description of this episode. Also, there's a link in the description of this episode for the Build a Business Abroad guide as well. Be sure to tune in for more updates if you're interested in joining the Build a Business Abroad group coaching program. And I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear your questions that you may have for me. I am going to do an Ask Me Anything episode in the coming weeks and months. So send me a voice memo, just record it on your phone, and send it to me at hello at flourishintheforeign.com. I'm looking forward to hearing you guys. It's going to be exciting. And of course, thank you to Zach Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Appreciate you, good sir. And as always, it is not about moving abroad. It's definitely not about being abroad. It's about thriving abroad. Yes, yes. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See y'all next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And regarding being a woman of color, being a black woman, moving abroad, I know there are lots of resources where they say, go to these places or don't go to these places. We are not a monolith. There's not like a one size fits all. And My path and my experience traveling and living abroad is mine and it was kind of an extension of who I am and all of those experiences, big and small, significant and significant. It's not like you can put that on someone else and and they're going to have the same outcomes because they're not the same person.